Cars on Call is a different car podcast. Two car guy physicians join noted automotive authority, Adams Hudson, to discuss car topics you won't find anywhere else. I'm Steve Schutz, and I've been publishing new car reviews for almost 30 years. Stefan Moran is a trauma surgeon who has published articles in the automotive safety literature and operated on countless car crash victims. And Adams Hudson is a now-retired successful businessman who has bought, sold, and owned over a hundred top-shelf enthusiast cars. Welcome to Cars on Call. Welcome to Cars on Call. I'm Steve Schutz, and I'm here with co-hosts Stefan Moran, trauma surgeon, and uh, Adams Hudson. Uh, St- Stefan, I'll start with you. We we skied together last week. You survived. No accidents. Uh, no crashes. How are you? You're back in Alabama. I'll tell you, it's always a good ski season with I end with my boots on and not riding in the sled. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> good well, last year, yeah, last year was an eight-day hospitalization and two weeks at home with a chest tube after a little mishap on the mountain. But this year I'd skied four different trips and uh I don't even think I fell one time. So it was a, it was a good season, but I must admit I was a little bit gun shy this year and I did not hit any of the extreme slopes. I'll say that for next year. Yeah, the uh the burnt child shuns the flame and uh uh I think I I speak for everybody who knows you when I say uh that is not a little mishap when you're in the hospital for 8 days. So Glad you're okay. Adams, how are you? I'm doing really well. Uh, I can't help but notice you you guys went skiing, risking life and limb. I didn't go anywhere, and I broke my ankle. Whoa, oh, no. What happened? Yes, sir. Yeah, I'm looking for free. <laughs> is, this during your yoga, is this during your yoga class dog pose? You slipped and fell? You know, you would just go right for that, wouldn't you there, Steph? No. <laughs> yeah. I leapt off a ladder. No, I did not. I actually, it was a stress fracture that got a little bit worse, and... Mm. You know, when you get to be my age, you just sort of have these things happen, and I'm dealing with it. I've got the attractive boot that I clomp around in like a, like some sort of ogre under the bridge, but I'm doing okay. I hope you get better. Yeah, thank yeah. you. you got to make it better. That story is just too lame to be walking around with a boot on your leg. I agree. I'll, I'll, I'll come up with something. Yeah, you were channeling your Alabama team, and you went out to – your driveway and did a slam dunk and landed wrong. How about that? That's that's probably better. <laughs> I like your version. A, a 360 dunk. So <laughs> we've got a special guest who we'll introduce uh, a little bit later, but uh, we have some news guys. And, you know, we have told bad stories about OEMs who are doing things we don't like. This started actually, guys, six months ago when BMW said, we're going to put heated seats in your car, but you have to pay a monthly subscription. And we howled, a lot of people howled. And then another thing happened, and this was four months ago or something. This really bothered me, guys. And GM said, okay, you have to pay $500 a year for three years for OnStar if you have a a brand new GMC or Buick vehicle. This is an option that you have to pay for. There's no way out. And we said- How's that that an option? Correct. Exactly. (laughs) So- we howled again, and uh, same thing happened as BMW pulled back on that plan, which we thought was a bad plan. GM said they're going to stop doing that, according to Automotive News. Adams, how stupid was that anyway? That was really stupid. You know, we're sitting here, and, and it's funny, Steph picked right up on it. And I think anybody who hears the words mandatory option, do they actually know the meaning of either of those words? Because they're as oxymoronic as saying, um, 
a working vacation or a civil war or governmental intelligence, any of those things, you just you just can't put those words together and get away with it. And now GM has, I'll say wisely, but it's because they were forced into a corner and had to do it because of the public outcry. Now they're making it a true $1,500 option and they're putting it on the upscale cars, which means it's now proper tiered pricing. But uh, then people can walk themselves up the ladder, seeing that it's an aspirational option, something they might want to move to a higher end car to get that OnStar, which is a good program. I mean, let's just give them credit where it's due. I mean, OnStar is a great program, but now people can move themselves up the ladder and it is frictionless in the marketer's terms, as opposed to creating static, which is what they did before. Well, I mean, I don't know why it took them so long, like you guys said, for them to pull this. And to me, it just drove me insane. And we talked about on the invoice, the car, they call it an option. You cannot delete it and you're going to pay it. And I just think it was the biggest, biggest marketing mishap. I mean, you'll never see me in a GM dealership anyway. But after all the other scuttlebutt with the other people having these new programs where you have to pay a subscription for heated seats to get a little more horsepower. I think it was a bad move on General Motors part. And uh, I'm glad that they finally withdrew it. But like I said, they should have done this. They should never have done it in the first place. And they should have pulled it off the market a lot sooner. Uh, Agreed. I think that part of the problem is that they all painted themselves into a corner over the last year or two. You know, they, they watched as tech companies, have all been jumping on the subscription bandwagon. And we all pay subscriptions for all kinds of different apps, particularly music. And, you know, it's not free. It used to be all free. Now it's free if you want to listen to uh, two ads for every song. But to get, you know, good YouTube or good Spotify, you're going to pay a subscription. I think that the automakers looked at that and they salivated and they said, hey, we're putting more software. Let's start charging for it. And then people weren't ready. You know, you have to make the customers ready and they weren't. And it's just, it's just a bad idea, especially especially if you say it's an optional subscription that it's mandatory. I agree with you, Adams. It's a it's an oxymoron. And I think I think the whole deal about in-car navigation, in-car OnStar, with the advent of smartphones and Waze and Google this and Google that and chatbot, why do you need a subscription service to OnStar in your car? I mean, if you crash your Apple phone or your Android is going to notify anyway. So I'm kind of like. I mean, yeah, they come on and say, are you okay? And but I, I think in today's world of the smartphone that um, it's going to be rapidly obsolete. You're not going to be seeing manufacturers offering things like OnStar. We got to move on, but I think it was desperation. You know, OnStar has been with us for about 25 years. I think during that entire time, it's been a solution looking for a problem. And now it's a solution looking for a problem and money. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny. It, it was the solution that created its own problem with this forced option business. But yeah, so Bad. all right, we got a little bit of car spotting, and Adams, uh, you could go with this and tell us what uh, our car spotting is this week because it's, I think it's a very interesting car. I think so too, Steve. I'm glad you agree. It's you know it, uh, we, we're talking about the Mercedes Benz. 300 CE, that's part of that W124 and Mercedes speak sort of family of cars. And the 300 CE, back when the, the numbering and lettering system actually made sense, um, was the, the midsize version, the CE being the coupe version, C for coupe. And it was a good looking car. It was a Bruno. And just, just interrupt, it was the 1988. So it's a, it's a late 80s. 
That co- correct, and thank you for that. Yes, yeah, so so between uh, eighty seven and ninety six, uh, they made this car. Very handsome, very understated, isn't you sort of the typical Mercedes-Benz way of the day. And in fact, you'd almost have to do a double take to see if it was even a two-door, but you know, they sort of canted in the um C pillar, I guess, because the B pillar is no longer there, and just sort of tidied up the car. And it's 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 a neat looking piece. And relative to how many W124s they made, which was like two million of all variants. Uh, they made a relatively scant 140,000 of the CE. And, you know, to see one today is just sort of an unusual piece. Uh, the 300 means it was a three liter and inline six, just one of the silky smoothest engines they ever, ever made. They also made a little bit of a downstream car in the 260E. That was a 2.6, about 158 horse. Uh, the 300 CE, I think, had between like 177 to 180 horse, somewhere in there. And then they had a 24 valve version that they wisely called the 300E-24, just so you'd know. It had about perfect German logic the whole way. And it was about a 224 car, but it was very good looking. And Steph, you'll appreciate that this was kind of in the pioneering days of the airbag, of ABS braking. They so, this was an interesting stat to me. I was checking up on the car. They so reinforced the rocker panels of this car because it got rid of the B-pillar and they reinforced the roof and they reinforced various other places that the two-door weighs slightly more than the four-door. Wow, I didn't know that. Yep. Not only did it weigh slightly more, but I think the price tag weighed about a a brick of gold more than the four-door as well. I mean, this was an impressive car. It was just kind of like, the height of their Teutonic engineering, the quality was amazing on this vehicle. It looked good. It was conservative. You had a very influential design. But man, this thing was expensive at the time versus the it, Ford. I, I don't remember exactly what the I don't remember exactly what the cost premium was to cut two doors out of a vehicle, but it was pretty outrageous at the time. We sold those new. I, I was I was at the Porsche dealership in 1988. I was there for a whole year and a half. And there was a Mercedes uh, Benz uh, showroom that was adjacent to us, part of the same franchise. And we never sold them. I mean, they were selling the four doors 20 to one, if I had to make a a guess. It could have been even more than that. And just occasionally you'd get an architect uh, who just couldn't live without the two door. And that was like the car he had to have. And that was the type buyer it was, a well-heeled, esoteric, design-oriented sort of person. Adams, do you remember what the price was? My recollection, it was like sixty thousand dollars back then. I get it. Do you know? No, I. You know, I wish I. I wish I did, Steve. I'm going to say it was a little south of that, but we're talking about late '80s dollars. You know, which would put the things well up into the six-figure category now. Are you going to make me look that up while we take a breather? Well, here? I'll tell you why I ask. I don't know the actual number, but you know, it, I agree. It's a classic Bruno Sacco design. The W124 is one of the best looking Mercedes ever. And it's absolutely a classic, but I was graduating from medical school and I had an air force scholarship. So I was off to the air force and I wanted to get a new car and I I figured I'd get a three series BMW. I I actually wanted a three twenty five IS, but it was really expensive. It was at least 32, 33, $34,000, which just seemed crazy to me. And then the, the 300 CE, which I wasn't looking at, 
but you know, I read the, read the magazines. I remember it was like $60,000 or $50,000, which, you know, like it was insane. So I ended up getting an Acura Legend Coupe, which I thought was good looking. I got a manual transmission and it was a very good quality car. And I remember thinking this car has quality that's equal to the Germans and it's basically half price. It's not half price from the BMW, but it's a lot cheaper. And then compared to the Mercedes, it was way, way cheaper. So I agree with Stefan that what I remember about this car is the price tag. You know, you guys are dead on. I'm a little off. It said that the base price was $52,500, but that did not include delivery expenses, taxes, or even one option. And I'm sure Mercedes-Benz probably charged you for the first aid kit in the rear seat console that they, you know, would, would charge you for everything back then. So, it was, yeah, it was probably a 60 or low $60,000 car back in the day. And, of course, the 300 competed more with the 5 Series BMW if I've got my sizing right, and the 190 was the three series competitor. Correct. But the little 190, you know, suffered such on, on, on image. It was just, you know, down market in every way where I just thought the three, the 300 CE, I think in retrospect has now earned, earned its stripes because you can buy one for next to nothing. Uh, a hint to the bargain hunters out there who want to enter into the collectible world for not much money. Yeah. Uh, that's hilarious, by the way. Before we move on, uh, I just did the calculation. Fifty two thousand dollars in nineteen eighty eight is one hundred thirty thousand dollars today. Holy mackerel! Give me a break. That's um, ridiculous. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Although you know, it's funny, Adams. It's not worth that much today, but it sure looks good today. It does look good, and it's a car you can trust to go up and down the road for many, many miles. It's probably a three hundred thousand mile motor, properly maintained and it does look pretty good i think a lot of people would have a hard time saying oh yeah that looks like it's about a 35 or 40 year old car it just doesn't this one last automotive geek thing the uh for the listeners an inline six and a v12 are the two only engines that have inherent no harmonic frequency internally what that means is they have no vibration they don't have to add different balancing shafts and camshafts. So that's why the inline six is just such a wonderful engine as well as the V12, that they're perfectly balanced engines. And they sound good. All right. Oh, they sound they so do. good. A little bit of news before we get to our special guest, Porsche announced a upcoming, they didn't say exactly when, but an upcoming all electric. So it's a BEV SUV. And of course, everybody howled when they came out with the Cayenne about 22 years ago. This new one is going to have three rows of seats. It's a seven-passenger vehicle. I'm not sure it won't be cheap. Stefan, is it on your list? Uh, no, but uh, <laughs> I, I got. I'll tell you this: they will build it, and I guarantee they will outsell the Pura Sangue. I mean, they'll sell this thing like hotcakes, man. This is going to replace the Range Rover. I think it's going to be not replace it, but it, you know. You want to be the cool person in the neighborhood. You got the range, whatever. This is going to be the equivalent to that, but you're but you're being you're saving the environment in your seven passenger BEV. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I can smell the smirk from here, Stefan. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, th- I mean, think about saving the environment with the battery electric vehicle, and now you're making a nine thousand pound vehicle, and you're saving the environment just because you got an electric battery in it. Bullshit. You know, if you want to save the environment, you build a small four-door as a BV, but you don't build something with three rows of seats that's going to weigh eight to 10,000 pounds. I agree with all that, except I think they're going to have trouble selling it because this 
is a road trip car. This is, you know, the oh, good point. Yeah, great this, point, Steve. This is the equivalent of a BMW X7 or a Mercedes GLS or an Audi Q7. I think, you know, there's no supercharger networks for these things. And this is the kind of car you load it up and you go to Myrtle Beach, you go to the Oregon coast, or you go to the lake in Michigan. This is a road trip vehicle. On the one hand, yeah, it's for soccer, it's for soccer practice and stuff like that. But this is absolutely a road trip vehicle for vacation, spring break, whatever. And that's the problem. You know, you're going to load it up with a bunch of stuff. Your range is going to, is going to take a hit. Imagine, uh, as you, Stefan, have mentioned, foraging for electricity with three young kids. And you tell them, hey, sorry, we're, de- we're low on electricity. You got to unplug your iPads. Yeah, and you got to turn off the monitor in the back with, uh, what's that movie, Frost or Frozen playing back there. The kids sing, you turn it off. They're all screaming, vomiting now because they ate McDonald's <laughs> chicken nuggets. And you, and then you're foraging for electricity. Great point. I didn't think about that, Steve. You're absolutely right. That Yeah, but I the think- people that buy this can probably afford it, and they're probably going to park it next to the Escalade anyways or the Rain River, and I'll take that instead. I can see the Porsche Taycan station wagon because you zip around in that, and then you have an Escalade for or, or a GLS or an X7 for long trips. But I can't see having another big SUV along with your already big SUV. I just it just doesn't make sense. I think they're going to have trouble selling it. Let's we have a Porsche expert as our guest. Before I introduce you, Brett, just very quickly, is this like a smart thing for Porsche? Or do you think it's going to sell, or do you think it's going to be a bomb? Well, I've been the owner of three Cayennes, and when the Cayenne first came out, I go, why the hell is Porsche making an SUV? So I am not really sure if I'm the best judge of it. But from the picture you sent, I will say it is better looking than that BMW that I saw at Amelia that I sent you a picture of. You remember that SUV? The iX, yeah. I saw one of those on vacation, and it was atrocious. Yeah, Yeah. I've I've seen it too. I agree. They've outgrilled themselves. Yeah. But when you look at the picture of it, you know, it seems like another one of these, like we've had a Suburbans forever and you can either have the third seat in and still have some cargo room. But this looks like one of those three rows that if you have the third seat in, A, there's probably not much room for the people in the third seat and then you have no cargo space. So I think it's going to be kind of a funny fit. Yeah. And 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 again, I think if you took a Cayenne and stretched it and gave it a little bit of a different design and put a third row seat in, I think it would succeed. So my answer to Porsche, if they were to ask me, is I'd say absolutely do this. People will buy it. Just take exactly what you have and stick a V8 into it. Or three. How about a three-row G-Wagon? <laughs> you know, that thing would sell. But before we get 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 fully into our guest, and I'm as excited as as our listeners are to hear him today, the whole concept of Steve, you mentioned on it, you know, Porsche is almost like forgotten that they have the Taycan uh, Turismo. They they just yeah. barely market it at all. It's an incredibly handsome silhouette. It actually has function. I love the look of that car. It's properly sized. They don't they don't sell well, but they're not marketed well. But to go up to this huge thing that they're currently calling the K1, and, and I think, Steph, you may have underguessed the, the weight of it. I mean, an eight to 10,000 probably is going to be in the high eight, maybe 9,000 pound range. And again, loaded up with people, but they can probably save a little bit of money on the autonomous driving stuff because the car will be so heavy, it cuts grooves in the road. <laughs> <laughs> and so it'll be like on its own track. So we, all the other big fat vehicles can follow this along. And then, you know, they'll just be like in a, in a, in a train line. So we'll sort of like make a, make a retrospective there. But 
I am not in favor of it. And like Brett said, I was mad at Porsche for about 10 years after they made the first Cayenne. And I drive one now. I've succumbed. I've given in to the enemy. And uh, But this one is a step too high, too far, though I admit they'll sell all, all that they can make. Yeah, we'll see. Anyway, let me give a formal introduction to Brett Williams, who's here. Uh, we're very excited to have you, Brett. And Brett is uh, a retired, very decorated veteran, but he was uh, an F-15 fighter pilot and then retired as a two-star general from the Air Force, went into cybersecurity and was there for quite a while before he retired for good. And now he does a lot of other, a lot of projects. I'll let him discuss them, but he's a proud dookie like me. And uh, he does, he lives in, in Durham near Duke and does work at Duke University as well. So we're really excited to have you, Brett. And before we start talking about your car guy stuff, just discuss if you could your military career and kind of where you came from. And then I know Stefan wants to get into the cars right away. So go into that and, and just, and say hi. Yeah, absolutely. Well, well, first of all, uh, formally, I'd like to say uh, hi to Adams. I've never met Adams. I've heard you a few times on the podcast, but pleasure to meet you. I have had to deal with with Stefan down at the uh, Burning Experience. <laughs> so, uh, deal with me. Uh, thank so you I, very I know much. what that is. And, uh, <laughs> How do you think I I'm, feel, Brett? Yeah, I know. <laughs> and I'm uh, I'm really proud of the uh, the relation. If I could just segue off a bit, the the relationship that uh, uh, that Steve and I and our families have made because um, we met on a a trip through the Duke Alumni Association last summer in Europe. And, uh, you know, I got to tell the story, Steve, you know, it was like day one, we're at the first little expedition or whatever it is. And I don't remember what the shirt was, but uh, Steve had some kind of shirt on and surprisingly it had a Porsche reference, but it was kind of obscure. I don't know if it was, maybe it was a GT3 dashboard or something. I don't remember what it was. And I said, so uh, are, are you into Porsches? <laughs> so off we go. And, uh, and by the next day, Elisa, his his wife, and at least uh, two of the kids and one of the girlfriends slash fiancés had told my wife, Marianne, thank God you're here so our dad has somebody to talk to. So, um, uh, so true. And, and, as a, and as opposed to most fighter pilot stories, which are only required to be 10% true, that one's like 90% true. So, um, but uh you know, you meet people in situations like that and you go, hey, we got to get together, you know, and blah, blah, blah. But uh, Steve and I have stayed in touch and um, he made me, I got off of Instagram quite a while ago. He made me get back on because he, he sends me so many uh, Instagram Porsche pictures. And uh, and we all rendezvoused, as you talked about a few weeks ago down in Birmingham. And uh, we're going to rendezvous again at Rensport in September. So uh, so I think it's cool that, uh, you know, you make relationships like this and uh you know, it's uh, neat to me. It all ties back through Duke. So, uh, so Steve, thanks very much for the invitation today. You're welcome. Welcome. So, Brett, so we I'll appreciate just... you being here, uh, largely for saying that you were happy. You were happy to meet me, but I'll notice you used the phrase, you had to deal with Stefan. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that I, I, I somehow I get that that's probably a pretty common sentiment, but I don't you know, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, because I'm a little bit spirit guys. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, my, my very short bio is, uh, as Steve alluded to, I went to Duke. I met my wife here at Duke and, uh, we graduated in 1981. We met in Air Force ROTC. We both went into the Air Force. She served uh, 20 years. I was in 33 years, the majority of my time as an F-15 pilot with a variety of commands, about 100 combat missions. And then um, 
And then the last four or five years, I got into IT and cybersecurity. I retired out of the United States Cyber Command, uh, then co-founded a cybersecurity company and did that for about seven years. And then, um, as Steve said, I do a little bit of board work now. I uh, work with some students at Duke and I uh, and I try to play some golf. And uh, we've got two kids, a daughter uh, who lives here in uh, the Raleigh-Durham area with us. And then I've got a son uh, who didn't want a real job. He's also a fighter pilot, uh, flies the F-16 uh, <laughs> out in uh, out in New Mexico right now. And so, uh, so that's a little bit of my uh, uh, of my backstory. And um, and so, yeah, I'll leave it at that, Steve, and see what, what you want to talk about. All right, well, this is a car show, Brett. So let's regress. I, I do want to say, so you said Air Force, you might have been the command or the Space Force. I mean, if you're in cyber. They might have pulled you right over to the Space Force. Well, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't think I could be a space <laughs> yeah. cadet. But uh, yeah, no, the space, space Force cadet. is, yeah, space, well, they call them Guardians. That's the official name of them. But uh, actually, the Air Force <laughs> does the vast majority of the cyber work for the uh, for the Space Force. So uh, they'll start building out their own thing. But uh, I, yeah, I think I left the Air Force at about the right time. All right. Well, hey, getting back to cars, so. Like on our origin story, our first podcast, Steve and I talked about later, we had Adams. So as a car guy or a car gal, I think we all have it. What we use in medicine is sentinel moment where it's like that was the day that something about the automobile industry or cars or racing, just you knew you had the bug. Do you have a, a moment like that in your life? Yeah, I, I mean, I would offer two. There's the the practical moment, you know, the day I turned 16 and for $350 uh, from uh, uh, the cart guy at the golf course I worked at, um, he financed a uh, 1967 Rambler American for me uh, as a 199 one barrel. And uh, and that car ran great until a guy pulled out and totaled it. And, uh, and so that was where I started. But um, in terms of really being interested in cars and performance, my first Porsche was a a straight 944 in 1986. And then um, I got assigned to Iceland and we only had the car for maybe less than a year, but you know, I wasn't that impressed. It was fairly underpowered, et cetera, et cetera. But when I got back uh, from Iceland, uh, my wife tracked down uh, a 944 turbo and uh, we bought that car. It came with a two day skip barber racing course at Pocono Raceway. And uh, Stefan, I would say from that moment on, I was a Porsche owner. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I, I haven't done a ton of track time, but uh, that definitely opened my eyes to, and I think we discussed this in Birmingham, it opened my eyes to, you know, how, how does anybody rent a race when all these cars are exactly the same? And, you know, my introduction to lines and breaking points and apex and, you know, all that stuff, then you see, uh, you know, how much it is a marriage of, uh, of driver and machine uh, to really get the most out of it. And so, so I would kind of say those are my origins of, uh, of real car interest. Excellent. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, we did the Porsche experience together and I've always kind of wanted a Porsche, a Porsche, I should say, but after our you driving experience at Barber, I have to have one now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just got to convince the wife that, you know, I'm not going to leave her for the Porsche, you know, cause that's kind of what, what, what most women think is that you're going to trade her up as well. But yeah, <laughs> I don't think I can yeah. trade up. I'm, I'm going to get that on tape right now. So yeah. <laughs> I've hit the top. Well, Brett, hey, man, this is Adams. I tell you, first of yeah. all, I got to say thank you to you and to your son for your, your devotion and your commitment to service. I mean that completely. It allows folks like us to uh, have the freedom to even have a podcast and get to talk about the fun topics. So thank you. 
Uh, I come from a town, Montgomery, Alabama, where there's an Air Force base, Maxwell, and a lot of the officers that come in would have fallen in love with European cars when they were stationed over there. But it sounds like your introduction to Porsche preceded that. Was this just something like when you got that 944, is it just something you'd seen on the streets in the day, wherever you were, and thought that's a cool looking car? Or how did that come about? Yeah, we bought that first 944. I still remember we we traded in my wife's Honda Prelude. We I, and to tell you the truth, I can't remember why. I think it's because we thought it was a cool looking car. You know, that was a fortuitous introduction to Porsche. And uh, and luckily, my wife is uh, more than tolerant. Uh, she likes uh, cars and airplanes, and tolerates me having both of those over the years. And so it's it's worked out uh, good. Sadly, hey, Brett, what color? I'm sorry. What color was your 944? It was um, uh, glacier blue. I think is what it was. Yeah, I've actually got it on my it, yeah my cars on my Instagram. I went back and looked up all the the color codes and all that stuff. But uh, yeah, it was I think it was glacier blue. That's a light silver blue. And if you got the eighty six, yeah. you got the post eighty five and a half new dash instead of the one that came out of the Audi eighty, which was sort of tacky and not so good. But uh, man, I, I agree with you. I, I sort of cut my teeth on the forty fours early and went from a normal forty four, which was underwhelming, like you said, big old lump of a four-cylinder with the counterbalance shafts, not a whole lot of juice, but the 44 Turbo was a completely different animal. So was yours an 86, seven or eight? What was yours? It was an 89. Uh, oh, so you had a Turbo, Turbo. Turbo S, yeah. really? They, they dropped yeah, they stopped the calling it. Yeah, they, they dropped the S, but it was, my understanding was all those components. And um and I actually had had an opportunity with the Porsche Club when I was in Tampa to drive it at Sebring. And that's when I really first got to see <laughs> what the car could do. It was amazing. You had the pick of the litter into the, the, the Porsche aficionados or not who are listening out there. Brett's referring to they had an S package, like a lot of the 911s have S's. A lot of the cars have S's. And in 88, uh, they called it the, the S. But in 89, they dropped the S. But you still got the hottest motor, the 247 horse motor. And that was a man. That was a really fabulous car. So yeah. from there, was it just a string of Porsche thereafter? Yeah, I had that one for, for eight or nine years. And then uh, <laughs> if I knew now what I knew then, I obviously never would have sold it. But I, I did sell it. And uh, I said, OK, I'm done with Porsche. And about a year later, I went in and ordered a uh, 2001 Boxster S. And that was followed by a, a 996. Uh, that was followed by a 997. Somewhere in there, we had first generation Cayenne, which was, again, kind of underwhelming comparing it to the Cayenne GTS we have today. And then I had uh, yeah, a 997, a 991. And then I've got a uh, first ever brand new to me, our first brand new 911 I bought. I ordered a, a 992 GTS, a 2022, and I took delivery of that last summer. And then uh, my wife's got a Cayenne GTS that uh, she just absolutely flogs, complains that it's not loud enough, even though it echoes through the entire neighborhood. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> uh, and now I'm trying to get an allocation for a, uh, a Boxster GTS just uh, just for fun. And, uh, and this is another 100 percent true story. It was Marianne's idea. Why don't we get a Boxster just for fun for a while? So. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're kind of hooked on Porsche. Well, we're 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 hooked on everything that makes Marianne herself and that tolerant of all these things. Yeah, <laughs> man, I gotta ask you with that incredible list of adopted automobiles. That is a pretty impressive lineup. Obviously, I have a little bit of a soft spot for the GTS, as do I. Could you pick a most and least favorite out of that group? I know it's like asking about your children, but give it a shot. 
the least favorite was probably the that first 944. And my second least favorite, because I really didn't know its track potential, was the 944 Turbo because, frankly, it was poorly made. You know, the, uh, the interior was bad. You know, the dash cracked real bad. Um, the air conditioning never worked despite uh, until we got assigned to Tampa and I got to a dealer who knew how to fix it. And so, you know, it was interesting, you know, Porsche, I don't 1% of what you guys know about cars, but I know in the late 90s, Porsche went through a, a big lean manufacturing overhaul of their process. And I'll tell you what, Adams, all those cars I named off, I had a coil problem in the 991, I think. Other than that, I literally have never done anything but preventative maintenance. And that just in, that includes the, the track times I've done with it and everything. I just, you know, I'm, I'm so impressed with the cars. But I got to say, the uh, this new Shark Blue GTS is, uh, you know, I, I've hit my sweet spot with that. I don't know that uh, I don't know that I'll, I'll get another one. But, you know, who knows? I think that those are great picks. One thing we've got to touch on is I've always thought that if you're into cars, there's nothing better than a really good sports car and probably there's nothing better than a Porsche. But if you've ever flown fighter jets, I'm sure there's the car, darn car is kind of lame compared to a fighter jet. Compare what it's like to fly. Well, first of all, describe flying a fighter jet, what it's like, and just kind of go through that life, but mostly what it's like up in the air. Uh, I guess you can add what it was like in combat and then just compare that with sports cars. Yeah. Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, and I appreciate Adam's uh, recognition of our service and, and uh, you know, I, I truly look at it as a, as an honor and a privilege. I mean, very few people get the opportunity to fly a fighter, you know, much less uh, a top line fighter, you know, made in the U S and, and flown in our, our air force. And so, you know, that was truly an honor and a privilege. Um, I think what people may not realize about flying a fighter is that it's a very industrial environment, if you will. You know, there are no comfort creatures, really. And, uh, you know, a lot of the combat missions I flew and the missions when we deployed from here to the Middle East, you know, you're in the airplane. The longest I've been in a you know single sortie was 14 hours, but, you know, a lot of six, seven, eight hour missions. And so, the environment is probably a little harsher than what you realize. And then it is almost impossible to describe for somebody that hasn't been there what it's like to, you know, to fly high G maneuvers like we do, you know, in training, you know, the dog fighting types of, of maneuvers, the things you see in the in the Top Gun movies. You know, I thought this last movie did a great job of of giving you a sense of how hard they're working when they're pulling G's, et cetera. And, you know, the need for you to be, you know, physically fit, et cetera. So, you know, all of that in terms of just physically operating the machine. And then uh, again, I think, because you haven't experienced it, the, the work that goes into being, you know, not only to get there to that level, but then to be the best at that level, the amount of work it takes to prepare for every mission and then to take the time to debrief every mission so that you know that each hour in the air is precious and you're going to use it to get better and better because your life depends on it. Your wingman's life depends on it. And, the you know, the safety and security of America depends on, on the Air Force being able to do its job. And so so I'd say um, the, the physical aspects of flying a fighter are something that's hard to describe if you haven't done it. You do get a sense for 
you know, like when we drove the cars at uh, at the Porsche experience, you know, just the lateral G-forces and, you know, you've got to really work to keep your body in the right place. You've got to look not in front of the car, but you got to look to where it's going. And it's just that, you know, in the air, when you're fighting other airplanes and you're passing close or like in the Top Gun movies, when you're close to the ground, there's not a lot of, of decision time. And it really relies on the, the good training they provide us to be able to to deal with those environments. And then I guess the second part of your question is uh, I never thought about it as closely as I did until I started watching a little of the F1 stuff, which frankly, hopefully I don't make anybody mad, but I tried to watch the race today and they're getting boring. <laughs> but uh, the uh, when you understand a little bit about, you know, what is that synthesis of, of driver and machine, right? That the best car doesn't always win, the best driver doesn't always win. And you can tell those guys are like fighter pilots and that, you know, look at their physical training, look at the preparation, the time in the simulator, et cetera. The very fine razor's edge that it takes to make the difference between finishing first and second. And then I think they do what we did in a fighter where you don't think about getting into the airplane. You think I'm strapping this thing on, right? And I am going to go and do what has to be done. And so I think, especially as you get up to those levels of professional driving and that sort of thing, I, I've started to, I think, come to the conclusion that, you know, there are some similarities into uh, into how that's done. And then obviously the driving is much more accessible than, um, you know, being able to go buy a fighter and fly it. So. Does it change how you look at a sports car? You know, I, I drive a fast sports car and, and you know, Stefan and I, I've talked a lot about the Porsche experience and especially getting into the Turbo S and how incredibly capable the car is. It kind of blew our minds. I, I, it probably doesn't blow your mind. No, I, I appreciate the technology. Again, we, we talked about, about this before. The um, you know, One of the things that transition between being a fighter pilot and, and driving these cars and doing the track business and all that is uh, I think that... Uh, you know, having operated in one realm with a very high performance piece of machinery that can kill you if you don't respect it, then when I started doing some of this track stuff, you know, that is 100% in my brain. And I, I think I told you guys the story of, uh, you know, there's kind of two stories in there. It was, it was my uh, my 997, it was a 2010, and I had met a guy who met a guy, and basically I went to a driving event down at Daytona, and it was the... Um, you know, like they do the 24 hours of Daytona. So, you know, you start on the road course and then you're around, I guess it's turn one and two, and then there's a little bus stop and then three, four, you know, all the way around. And, uh, you know, I drive the car 12 hours down there. I put it in sport plus mode for a day, drive it all around the track. And I had 12 hours the next day home and, you know, went through some tire rubber and some, you know, brake pads, you know, it's just, it's an amazing car. But during that, that time on that track, uh, several things occurred to me that, that did productively link to, to flying an airplane. You know, first I thought I'd never driven on a bank like that. I thought, well, this can be way easier to go fast on this bank. And it wasn't. I mean, you you have to get used to it because you're on the bank and you're looking really across your mirror if you're looking to where you're going. And then um, Stefan or, or you can give us all the details about how your vestibular system works and all that. But it actually created vertigo, uh, you know, and a little bit of a disorientation until you get used to it. And vertigo is a huge problem in airplanes. And so, you know, I knew exactly what it was, right? And I could react to that and also understand where the limitations were. 
there was another time in there, and uh, uh, Steve and, and Stefan, I know we talked about this, where I got into what we refer to in the air as a as a PIO, a pilot-induced oscillation, you know, where you make the critical error in the airplane or the car of moving the stick or moving the wheel in the direction of you're looking, but that's not where you intend to go. Like you're checking a mirror or something like that. And I was on the back straight, you know, going 120 or 30 miles an hour. And I did a little turn in the wheel as I looked in my mirror and the car, you know, goes just a little bit. And then I oversteer a little bit going the other way. And I did exactly what you do in an airplane. I kind of released it. It tracked back again, you know, and then off I went. And then I think the last thing that crosses over is, you know, after a few hours there, they find out you're a fighter pilot and uh, mostly based on your good looks, I think. But they find out you're uh, uh, they find out you're a fighter pilot and um, they go, there must be nothing to this. And I go, actually, this is pretty stressful, right? Because I literally met the instructor. This frankly wasn't the best most safely well-run driving experience. But, you know, I met the instructor five minutes before I got on the track. And five minutes later, I'm going 150 miles an hour and he's going, we need to be up closer to the wall, you know? And I'm going, well, what if you hit the wall? What if you crash at 150? Does my insurance cover this, you know? And what I explain to people- on. Yeah, yeah. What I explain to people is that it was my, my fighter flying that in an airplane, you start with the academics and then a simulator and you fly a low performance airplane, then you fly a high performance airplane and you fly it, you know, until by the time you get 3000 hours in it, you know exactly where the edge of the envelope is. You know when it's appropriate to push the edge of the envelope, you know when you never should. And with the car, I don't have that experience, right? And so, you know, I needed to make sure that I stayed with within my capabilities because just like we saw it at Birmingham, you know, whether it was the Turbo S or even the Cayenne or the Cayman GTS, those cars all had more capability to perform than I had to get out of it, right? And so that's kind of a long laundry list, but I think this appreciation for the fact that you are doing something that, frankly, it's dangerous, it's fun, it's exhilarating. And, and then I guess the last story I might tell that I, I told you guys that I thought was uh, was interesting was, uh, again, back to Adams, Marianne got me 10 wraps on the Nürburgring in a 911 GT3 uh, mm-hmm. after I retired. And so... Um, I did the the 10 laps with, and I don't know anything about simulators or reviewing it. You know, I knew what the Nürburgring was, but I'm driving with a, a Porsche driver. He's a young guy, 25, 26. I think he had eight or 9,000 laps on the ring. And, you know, he tolerates me going around my 10 laps and I'm happy because I can kind of remember where the carousel is now and that kind of stuff. And then I swap seats with him, right? And do a hot lap with him driving. And I was like, holy crap, this is not the same car. Right. He just, you know, it was completely different. And we get done. And I told him, I said, well, okay, this is what it would be like if, you know, we have a few two seat F-15s. I said, if I put you in the front seat of an F-15, let you fly it around for an hour, and then we swap seats, you would have the same reaction. Is this the same airplane I just flew? So those are all things, Steve, and I'll I'll shut up. But uh, those are all things that I see as kind of relationships between that. Everything from from how do you approach the mission, if you will to the respect you have to have for, you know, for what you're doing in the situation you're in. And and I guess the last thing is, is it's just like, we only fly our airplanes upside down at nine G's, you know, and pass each other 500 knots each way in designated airspace, right? And airspace that we know we aren't gonna run into somebody that's not supposed to be there. And so for the same reason, I don't race anybody in my 911s on the highway, you know? And so 
that's just not the place to do it. And, you know, there's nobody I need to prove my manhood to. So even the guy in the Tesla lab. So. Well, after another story, just saying that it may be harder to deal with a fighter pilot at a track experience than a trauma surgeon. Okay. Uh, just saying. I don't know. I think Here it's a go. toss up. I think it's a toss up. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, I, I got, I got, I want to take this. Um, let's play a little game here, Brett. Or I should call you ET. Silverback here. Use yeah, our call sign. Yeah. So I'm going to name some fighter jets. Mm-hmm. And Before I want you name you... them, Stefan, just for yeah. listeners, I found I didn't know this, but fighter pilots only call themselves by their call sign. And I, I'll, I'll tell a really quick story. I have a nurse who's married to an F-15 pilot, and uh, my wife knows an F-15 pilot who's married to. The daughter of friends so um we were at a christmas party and we asked this nurse uh does your husband oh the husband was there we said do you know this guy and we said the name and he said no and then the nurse knowing what was going on she said do you know his call sign and i said yeah his call sign is alpha and the guy goes oh yeah i know alpha <laughs> so your <laughs> call sign, go ahead and say your call signs again because i don't think that the listeners heard that Mine's E.T. E- is in the extraterrestrial. Uh, so I was a lieutenant about the time the movie that came out, and that's what I ended up being named. I'm the doc for a flight fighter wing. My call sign is Silverback because when I get a little bit excited and maybe pissed off, I tend to yell and scream a lot and beat on my chest. So uh, and I have a head <laughs> of silver hair. So my call sign is Silverback. There you go. All right, E.T., let's play a game here. So I'm going to name some fighter airplanes. And I want you to either kind of think about if there's an equivalent sports car that you think lines up with that airplane, or if you prefer, like, what kind of fighter pilot would fly that airplane. So kind of like a Rorschach, just kind of like what comes yeah. your thoughts. So we're going to go way back to my very one of my very favorite fighter airplanes of all time from my youth, the F-4 Phantom. What does that kind of bring to your mind? Well, for everybody that doesn't know, that, that airplane was built in the mid-50s uh, by my favorite airplane company. It was McDonnell Douglas, acquired by Boeing. They flew a ton of them in Vietnam. And I would liken that to not a particular one, but it's a 60s muscle car, right? There is, there is no uh, computers. There's no nothing. No creature comforts. It's hard to control except in just a straight line. And in my first squadron, you know, I was new F-15 pilot in 1981, and most of my IPs were Vietnam F-15 guys, and they still smoked during the briefing. They taught us to drink whiskey, and they told a lot of stories that started with, there I was. Excellent. <laughs> there I was. All right, so let's go to your plane. There I was. Let's go to your plane, the F-15 Eagle. Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll denote this as the F-15C, which is the, uh, the air-to-air version. And uh, I gave this some thought. I think it's a Porsche 959 because Ooh, it was uh, wow. interesting. It was, it was by far the, the most advanced air-to-air fighter of its time, it had the most advanced radar. It had the most advanced weapons. It had the most power. It set a time. It could accelerate vertically because of it had more thrust, more pounds of thrust than it weighed. But it was still a like the 959, it was an airplane that has to be flown. I mean, the stick was connected to, to rods and pulleys directly to hydraulic actuators. Uh, there was nothing to prevent you from putting it out of control. Uh, and the performance 40 years later is still remarkable. I mean, it's it can be outperformed today, but the, uh, the avionics and the radar, it's still looked at as just an amazing airplane. And I, I think that's that's similar to the, to the 959. And 
you know, and I found all the pilots of, of F-15s are, are humble, approachable, incredible, like, like me. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we'll work on that humility part. Yeah, now we're going yeah, yeah. to move to the F-16, which I have flown in, <laughs> which I affectionately call the Vomit Comet, which is uh, most flight surgeons that go in it um, or relate to that. So what do you think about the F-16 Fighting Falcon? What does that bring to mind? Well, I was, I was thinking about this. When it came out, it was called the electric jet because it was the first airplane that is uh, what we refer to as fly-by-wire. So, so when you move the stick, instead of you moving a push rod that moves a hydraulic actuator, the stick only moves like a quarter of an inch, as you know, when you flew it, or half an inch. And what you're doing is you're sending an electrical signal to the hydraulic actuators. And so what that means is for the first time, the computer in the airplane has a vote in what the airplane does. And so I equated that to the, my, my son is an F-16 pilot. When he got an F-16, we put him up for adoption. Nobody took him, but um, uh, <laughs> I was thinking about the electric jet and the Tesla Model S. And mm -hmm. my son, Sean, has a Tesla Model S. And, and I, I think it's because, you know, it, it does a lot of stuff pretty good. It's got pretty good performance, you know, in, in certain areas. Easy to get in trouble with the wrong driver, right? You put it on autopilot and let it go. But just like an F-16 has almost no range, okay? And so compared to an <laughs> F-15, right? And F-16 pilots, you know, will spend all their time telling you that this airplane is faster and cheaper and better. And, you know, that's just, that's just the way it is. All right. How about the uh, weird one here now? The F-117 Stealth Fighter, the Nighthawk. That was just a strange airplane that... What does that yeah. bring to mind? Yeah, for everybody that uh, may not remember that airplane, it was called the, it was the first stealth fighter. Uh, it's also known as the cockroach because it only flew at night. Uh, and <laughs> I never heard that. I didn't know that. I didn't oh, know that yeah. either. That's funny. For the people that were around for Desert Storm or seeing the videos, when you see the bombs going down the, uh, you know, the, the ventilation shafts in the top of the buildings in Baghdad, uh, that was the, the, the F-117 the Nighthawk. It went in first. We called it alone and unarmed. It relied completely on its stealth not to get shot down. And I had to look some things up. I, I came up with the Audi R18 e-tron Quattro. And the reason I came up with that was <laughs> oh if, if, I did, if I did my research right, that was the first hybrid to win Le Mans. And so that was a cutting edge technology that probably... Some people didn't think was ready for prime time and not everybody, including the F-117 pilots, thought that that airplane was ready to fly into a big surface to air missile area and not get shot down, but it proved it could do it. If I read it right, I think it was uh, 2012, uh, they won first and second place, uh, at least in their class. And so, you know, it was new tech, it changed the game. It was single purpose built, one mission. And we learned a lot off of it that went into the F-22 and the F-35. Man, I tell you, you know, uh, Brett, I know nothing. I've, I've spent very little seat time in any of the aircraft that you just described. And I'm telling you, <laughs> your your parallels, your automotive parallels are just dead, dead on. The 959 and the F-15 just really spoke to me because I'm a little familiar with the 959 and its groundbreaking technology. And another point of interest, 
before Stefan uh, married Ellen, a lot of the girls on campus referred to him as the cockroach. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's a whole different story yeah. there. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, Perfect. And, and by the way, speaking of spouses, we would like to have uh, Marianne on the show to do a, a, a tolerance training uh, for spouses. <laughs> uh, if yeah, that's yeah, so, yeah so. absolutely. Anytime. All right, so two more. Well, do two more quick jets, and I want to finish with a little transition. But we still got the F twenty two Raptor and the F thirty five Lightning, which are two of the most yeah. our newest fighters. Right, F twenty two Raptor. I, I was hoping I'd get to fly that thing, but it kept getting delayed so long, and uh, I just never had the chance. But it is definitely a nine eleven Turbo S. Whatever the most recent nine eleven Turbo S, that's a Raptor because it has all the power and all the tech to make it easy to fly at a very high level of performance. It literally flies higher and faster and shoots missiles longer than anybody else. And if it comes up behind you at speed, you will never know it's there until it's way too late, which I think is the same thing as a Turbo S on the long straightaway, so. Nice, nice. And and the F-35, I think you guys may have talked about this or it may have been on uh, that Spike Ferriston podcast, uh, but the Mercedes AMG EQS, it's got all the latest tech. We're, we're not sure if any of it's useful or if it all works, but at least it's really expensive. And so, um, oh, so the, the F, so no kidding. The F-35 is a great airplane. It does some great things, but I'm not sure if we didn't get a little too enamored with technology and it's just slowing down getting the airplane to where it where it needs to be. I mean, it, I, I'm kidding. It is a great airplane. I know several people that fly it, but if you talk to them honestly, you know, the F-22 was pretty advanced. It took a little while to get it worked out, but most people feel like it's taken too long to get the F-35 where it needs to be. It will get there. And it is the most advanced thing in the air for a lot of the things it does. But again, all the latest tech, I'm not sure it's all useful or needed or if it works, but again, it's expensive. So. Well, there's nothing better for re Navy recruiting than the Top Gun movies with Tom Cruise. Yeah. And um, so who, you got, I got to ask you, this is, I spent a lot of time in Annapolis and there's a lot of Navy fighter pilots, the old guys running around there in the downtown bars, which I may go to on occasion. So who's cooler, an F-14, an F-18 guy, and now an, an, so a Navy fighter pilot who lands on a floating postage stamp <laughs> in the weather at night versus an air force guy who's got like a 10,000 foot runway. So who's cooler, the Navy fighter pilots or air force fighter pilots? Well, you, there's, there's really no contest. And, and I'll tell you, <laughs> you know, Navy guys, you know, and, and I would tell you an F-14 is instead of a sixties muscle car is a seventies muscle car. Right. And I think a, an F-18 Hornet is kind of a Cayenne GTS. It's got good performance for its size, carries a lot of stuff, does a good job. But Navy pilots, no matter what they fly, are going to do exactly what you did. They're going to talk about how hard it is to land on a boat. Okay? <laughs> and and, uh, and it is hard, but if you can fly a fighter, you can figure out how to do it. I know many uh, Air Force pilots who have gone and done exchange tours with the Navy, and they go figure out how to land on a boat. And then they come back and fly in the Air Force. So the, the downside, in all seriousness, is you have to spend a fair amount of your allotted flying time just making sure you stay current, getting on and off the boat. And so uh, if you don't have to do that, which, yeah, all of them say it's fun during the day. It really sucks at night in bad weather, right? 
But if you don't have to spend all that time just training to take off and land, you know, it, it has to take away from, you know, your tactical training and that sort of thing. And and the Navy guys will tell you, no, nah, that's not true, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's it just, you know, it makes sense. And I got tons of friends that are Navy pilots. The first mission I flew in Desert Storm, I was escorting 12 uh, Marine F-18s. And so, you know, I've flown with a ton of, of Navy pilots. And again, they're great Americans. And that is certainly... Uh, that is certainly strenuous work. Um, but again, I, I believe it. I don't believe. I know it can be learned if, if you've got the capability to fly a fighter. Yeah, I think um, what I would say, and again, I'm not, a, I'm not a pilot. I don't pretend to be one. But what I'd say to a Navy pilot is once you land your plane, you're stuck on the boat with a bunch of like 2,000 guys. The Air Force guy <laughs> goes with his going to the club. club. Yeah, well... <laughs> Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that, Steve. I was the several of the squadrons I am. We, we had the Navy Exchange guy in our squadron, and for a couple of years we went. We're going to Saudi Arabia doing the Southern Watch mission, and we were living in tents, you know, with gang tent latrines you had to walk to and all that. And I said to you know, I asked the Navy guys. I said, "Well, it must be better than being on the boat." And they go, "No, this is way better than being on the boat." And I, I said, "Okay, well, that gives me an idea." So I went out to the Lincoln and uh, spent two days on the Lincoln during Iraqi Freedom. Got a backseat ride in F-14, so I got to see what the takeoffs and landings are. But 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 you're right. Two days on the boat was about enough. Six or seven months would get pretty old. All righty. Um, before we say goodbye, and this has been a great uh, conversation, but we're we're getting. I've got one thing before we say goodbye. Oh yeah, sure. So, and, and so uh, ET had to deal with me during this podcast, and uh, I think you got to deal with me again coming up in November when yeah. we do the master's course. So uh, listeners, ET and I, and actually Steve-O as well, we did so well at the Porsche driving experience. And even right. though I, I had to say that ET, you were in my rearview mirror most of the time. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, I, do, I do have a medical recommendation for you, and this is, goes to our listeners as well. So when you get to be a certain age, you have to have readers as well as distance viewing glasses. And when you're participating in sports, when you're driving high performance vehicles and even in airplanes, you don't want to be wearing transition gla glasses. And so for listeners, what that means is, you know, you've got a choice. I wear bifocals almost all the time. And the reason is when you have a transition glass, you can only look straight out the middle of your lens, which means you have to turn your head to have everything in focus. Anything out the side of the lens is out of focus. So transitions are not good glasses, especially for driving at night. Um, you're better off with a straight bifocal lens or a regular distance vision lens. And I did notice, you know, we talked about it, Brett, that I noticed you're wearing transitions at the track. And I think if you go out, anyone that wears transitions, just go outside, focus something distant straight ahead, and then just move your eyes, but not your head and try to focus out the side of your glasses. You can't. So um, I wear contacts when I'm doing sports and when I do the driving and when I hunt, especially because I have much better peripheral vision. So maybe uh, you change your glasses. It'll be me. You me uh, looking in. you'll be looking at me in your rearview mirror. <laughs> Actually, in the fighter business, you don't want to see me behind you. you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask one last question, and that is, you know, you went from active duty. Uh, obviously, flying was only part of it. You must have been uh, a good leader because uh, you made it up to two star rank. So, leadership and other th you don't make uh, general by being a good pilot. You you make it by being a good leader. So you did that. And then cybersecurity in your own company, which you co-founded. 
And now what are you up to? I, I understand you're doing something with Duke, but you're also teaching younger people, which makes me happy yeah. explain. Talk about that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks, Steve. And, uh, you know, that that is one of my favorite subjects is is leadership and, you know, having had the opportunity to, you know, put my time on active duty. And then, you know, in the startup, I had just about every job to include, you know, supervising the product development, data scientists and all that. And, you know, what I concluded over all those years, I sum it up is that, you know, good leaders can lead any team. And, you know, if you've got the right leadership skills, then you don't have to have the domain expertise because you're a lifetime learner. You will jump in and you will figure out enough to know what are the things this team needs to do? And more importantly, do I have the right leaders on that team that do have the right expertise, et cetera? And so what I'm doing now that I enjoy the most, is I'm on a couple of boards, but I have the opportunity both through my wife, Marianne, she's worked with Air Force ROTC as a mentor in a, in a program there. And so I get to engage with a lot of the ROTC students. And then uh, I do a variety of things at Duke where I get to engage with those students. And um, you know, last weekend uh, or last two days, I was up in DC with four of the smartest young, I won't call them kids, young men I've met, three freshmen and a junior, and they were competing in a cyber policy contest. There were 36 teams from around the country and I was their coach. And so they would be given a big Intel scenario and then they had to you know, put together a 10 minute briefing with a panel of judges, et cetera. And that is just so satisfying to be able to add to their knowledge with, you know, this is how it worked in the real world, et cetera. But more importantly, to be able to coach them on how to present yourself and how to deal with questions and adversity and all that. But even more so, you know, so many of these young people I get to work with are so smart. They're so driven. They're so committed. It really gives you a sense of hope <laughs> for our country, despite the politics you see now. And, um, you know, Steve, you and I were talking about a little earlier and the theme came up, you know, because there were a number of recruiters there and their people are looking for interns, et cetera, out of this group of young people. You know, because if you have the gusto to take your spring break to go do this, you know, you're looking to you're looking to learn something. And um, we got to get these kids, these young people to understand that government service, service to your country, whether it's the military or the federal government or state government, you know, or some other way to serve is important. And even if you only do it for a while, but, you know, if we don't get in my view. We don't get some some different genes into the political system. You know, we're going to be in trouble. And as I continue to work with these people, there are good people out there. I just hope that the, uh, you know, the cliche of, you know, all the best people that we want to be in politics don't want to be there, you know, because of the nature of it. And uh, I think we all have an obligation to, to try to get people to have those opportunities because, uh, you know, that's what's going to make our country continue to grow and be successful. Well, AT man, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for your service. And I'm especially proud of what you're doing here, fostering the next generation to take over leadership roles in this country. Lord knows we need it. Brett, um, you've done a fantastic job, man. You've been an encouragement to people and your leadership is exactly how much vision you give those very bright young men and women to, to see. And that's how far they'll go. And that's just very, very laudable. All right. well, thank you all very much. I've enjoyed it. Well, I look forward to see you in November at the Master's Experience at Barber. And uh, listeners, like, subscribe, all that. Tell all your friends. We want to get our listenership up. And uh, we'll talk to you next week.